to this Greenhouse Environmental Humanities book talk. We're excited today uh, to welcome Etienne Benson, who's Associate Professor in the Department of History and Sociology of Science at the University of Pennsylvania. And he will be presenting his book, Surroundings, A History of Environments and Environmentalisms, which came out with University of Chicago Press this year, 2020. So Etienne, we'll give it over to you. Great. Um, thanks, Dolly. Uh, thanks, Renarna, for the invitation. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming uh, to listen. Um, looking forward to your questions. Um, so I thought I would start just by saying something about where the project came from and how I see it as contributing to some of the, the bigger discussions happening. Um, these days, um, and then maybe, and then say a few things about um, a couple of um, conclusions that I came to or things that I discovered along the way that I thought were particularly surprising or, or interesting. And then I just open it up for any, any questions you might have. Um, I will start by saying that the project was a long time in the making. I think I had the first inklings of it maybe eight years ago, something like that. And at the time I was a postdoctoral fellow in Rainey Dastin's uh, department at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. And I was learning from her and from her colleagues about how they historicized some basic concepts like objectivity or observation. Um, and you know, these are the kinds of concepts that we take for granted. They seem so obvious, even if we think they're bad, even if we criticize them, we, we take for granted that they have a given meaning. Um, and, and I think what Dastin's you know, work has done and some of her colleagues have done is to show, no, those, those terms like objectivity actually have histories. And so that was the kind of milieu that I myself was in when I began thinking about this project. And because my own work is at the intersection of the history of science and environmental history, I started thinking about that concept environment that I had been using kind of unselfconsciously for a while. Um, and that I think a lot of my colleagues in environmental history also have used fairly unselfconsciously. Um, and started thinking, what's, what is its history? And so I started searching, you know, the, that, that in, indispensable tool of modern scholarship, the keyword search, I started doing that. I started reading as much as I could, looking at the OED, you know, using all the sources I could to just try to find out, you know, when did people start using this term? How did the use change over time? Um, what kinds of baggage does uh, the term environment carry with it? Um, and maybe you know, also thinking what, what potential does it have for the future? Is this a concept or a term that, that we can deploy usefully in scholarship and, and beyond? Um, it turned out that I wasn't the only one thinking about this or the only one who thought that this was an opportune time to reflect critically on the environment as a concept. So in the past few years, there've been a, a number of works published and I'll just name a few because they were works that I think are interesting and important and also influenced me. So. Paul Ward, Libby Robin, and Sarah Sterling's book, The Environment, which came out in 2018, which is a history of the idea. Karen Seltzer's book, The Post-War Origins of the Global Environment, I think a great book about the UN and how it kind of constructed the, the idea of the environment. Uh, Trevor Pierce has a book that's just out called Pragmatism's Evolution, Organism, and Environment in American Philosophy. And then if you're a reader of German, uh, Florian Sprenger's book, Epistemologien des Umgebens, um, is also a really interesting uh, history of Umgebung and Umwelt and environment and the, uh, um, all those concepts. So there's a bunch of really interesting work out there. 
Also something that's happened over the time that I've been working on this project is that um, the environmental humanities has really exploded as a field. And, and I think the more that that field gets interest and, and energy, the more important it becomes to kind of critically reflect on the environment as a concept. And so people have started doing that. And so I've been interest, influenced by scholars such as Donna Haraway and Bruno Latour and Stacey Alimo and Timothy Morton and others who've been kind of critically thinking about what, what concepts, what kind of conceptual toolkit we want to use. So that's some of the background and it's, uh, that's the kind of um, scholarly historiographical environment that I see the book being, uh, contributing to. And, and my hope is that maybe somebody right now is writing a, a review essay that wraps all those things together and talks about what each of them can, can contribute to this moment of critical reflection. But of course, you know, I also think that surroundings does something distinctive. I also think it, you know, it does it has its own special contribution to make. Um, and so, you know, if I just sort of three three things that I was kind of coming up with as 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 I was preparing for for today that I think make the book kind of stand out, you know, uh, and, and take its own distinctive role in in that kind of constellation of, of other works. Um, and maybe the most important one is that in the book I was not not really interested in taking a specific concept of environment, my concept of environment, or what I understand to be the dominant concept of, of what an environment is and, and how we know it and how it matters. And then looking into the past to find examples of people or origin stories for that concept of environment. What I wanted to ask is when have people historically, when have historical actors themselves adopted environment as a key word or a key concept for their own purposes. And, and it might sound like a subtle difference, but it, it changes things a lot because it, in some ways it both broadens and it narrows the scope of, of what we're looking at. Um, so it broadens it in the sense that um, it uh, makes us look at people that we might not think of as environmentalist or as, as thinking in environmental terms if we just take a kind of current you know, concept of that. And it, it, you know, it, it brought my attention to some people that I didn't really think of as environmentalists or as proto-environmentalists, but who themselves thought that they were talking and thinking about environment. So in that sense, it kind of, it, you know, broadens things out and opens us up to some new, maybe some new actors. Um, and at the same time, it also kind of narrows it because it says, you know, one of my filters for kind of looking for, uh, you know, the book is organized kind of in episodes. And one of my filters for picking those episodes was that I needed people to be explicitly talking about environments in, or an equivalent in whatever language they were using. Um, and that meant that there's some people that have figured prominently in histories of environmental thought or environmentalism that didn't show up because they themselves weren't actually talking about it that way. And so those people got left out. So it kind of shifted the, my, my focus a little bit once I realized that the project was really about how people, how and when people themselves start to think in environmental terms. One other consequence, and I think another thing that's uh, distinctive about the book, a consequence of thinking about the project in this way, when and how do people start thinking environmentally, is that um, I, I don't, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't start the book in the mid 20th century, which is where a lot of people who are looking for the origins of our contemporary understanding of environment start. Um, instead, I start at the end of the 18th century. And that's even earlier than when the term, like if we look at English, the term environment really only starts being used in the late 19th century. Um, but it's my argument in the book that, that the people who start using the term in the mid to late 19th century are looking back towards important shifts in how people understood life um, in relation to its surroundings at the end of the 18th century. 
But in any case, the, 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 the temporal span of the book is a bit broader than one that would just focus on the concept of environment associated with the, the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s. And then the third kind of distinctive thing I think is that I really try to root changes in how people are using language and, and developing concepts, really try to root those in their kind of material and social context. So this is not a history that's just about some canonical texts or some, some kind of influential authors and how they picked up and reworked each other's ideas over time. But it, it really tries to say, look, a group of people started talking about environments. And at the very same time that they started talking about environments, they were also enmeshed in certain kinds of institutions, developing certain kinds of tools, maybe even influenced by certain kinds of economic considerations, uh, maybe influenced by, you know, there's one chapter where I look at the influence of uh, the experience of the First World War on the development of ecosystem ecology over the next few decades. So really try to kind of deeply, richly situate these kind of intellectual or conceptual developments in, in, those, in those contexts. And, and I think that's what maybe distinguishes my approach a little bit from people who've taken a more intellectual history, more kind of conventional intellectual history approach or more philosophical approach to the idea, um, is that I see concepts as coming to matter in, in environments, right? um, to kind of reflexively use that term. The concepts come to matter because people put them into practice. And I wanted to show what that, some of that practice looked like um, in the book. Um, so let me, that's sort of the, the, the approach. Um, one, one consequence of, of thinking about the, the question this way is like when and how and why do people start thinking about environments is that I realized that there's a thousand stories um, and I didn't have it in me to write a thousand stories nor did I expect that any reader would want to read them. Um, and, and some of them I just wasn't capable of writing. I didn't have the sources or the linguistic expertise or the familiarity with the context to really do a good job of it. So. Um, I ended up focusing largely on, you know, on, on kind of six different episodes, sort of from the late 18th century to the, to the present, more or less. I'm mostly focusing on Western Europe and the United States, which are places where I was familiar with the history and, and I could read some of the texts in, in their original languages. Um, and, and I know that there's a much bigger story out there, um, but I just, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't write it. And I thought that, that by, by showing that you could write a small part of that story, that that would, that would itself would be a contribution. And maybe um, other people who have those other competencies could, could write some of those other stories and probably change my story in the process. Um, a couple of, uh, I just wanted to share a couple of, maybe some, some dis discoveries from myself um, in the course of doing the project that, that I, I, I thought were interesting or surprising that I didn't expect. Um, I guess beyond the big one, which is my kind of initial surprise at learning that the, the word environment didn't start to be used widely in English until the mid, really the late 19th century. But to me, that was like surprisingly recent. And I think if you look at other European languages, um, at least the ones I'm familiar with, like French and German and a little bit of Spanish, that, that similarly the equivalent, more or less equivalent terms don't really start to be used widely um, until the mid 19th century. So there's something very modern you know, I mean, we, one way that I think about it sometimes is that this, this term environment emerges around the same time that the word technology emerges um, in English with something like its contemporary meaning. So it's, it's, that, it's that modern. It's not, it's not nature, right? Nature is a term we can trace back a couple thousand years in different ways. Uh, environment is a term we can trace back at most 200 years or less. Uh, so a couple, yeah, so a couple other things. I mean, so one thing I, th I found that was really interesting was, um, and this is sort of on the, really on the history of ideas level is 
there was this really interesting um, development in the relationship between uh, the term climate or the concept of climate and the concept of environment, which I think really only becomes evident when you tell a story that starts in the 18th century and ends in the present moment of concern about climate change. And, and that's that at the end of the 18th century, climate was still a term that for many users of that term, at least certainly for the Parisian naturalists that I look at in the, in the first kind of main chapter of the book, it's a term that was very capacious, that could include lots of things that, that we now wouldn't necessarily include. It could include soils, for instance, or it could include other kind of, I mean, it's hard not to use the terms, you know, I'm gonna say other environmental factors, right? Um, and what happens uh, over the course of the next half century or so is that climate incre increasingly gets shrunk down to atmospheric conditions. And all those other connotations that had been associated with climate end up getting wrapped up in this thing called environment with one crucial difference, which is that whereas climate was a concept that was identified with particular regions of the Earth's surface, right? You can imagine a climate, you know, uh, depending on your latitude or maybe changing as you moved up and down in altitude, but in any case tied to a part of the Earth's surface, environment was not tied to the part of the Earth's, Earth's surface in the same way. It was something that could be decomposed into different factors that could potentially be reconstructed in other places. And then the chapter I have on, um, Kind of naturalists in Paris at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, that was a key part of what they were doing at the very moment that they were constructing this concept of environment is they were building tools and instruments to recreate environments in a single place in Paris. And they were doing that by building hothouses and creating other kinds of tools, wind shelters and sun, sun shades and modifying soils. And all that together helped them kind of construct this idea of an environment that you could reconstruct in different places at different times if you had the right tools and practices to do it. And interestingly, I think what's happened in the past few years, few decades maybe, is that climate has started to kind of recolonize some of that space. I think in a lot of time, place, uh, ways, people now have a, a capacious, an increasingly capacious concept of, of climate as something that um, is tied to lots of other things besides just atmospheric phenomena. It's tied to oceans. It may even be tied to, to biodiversity, right? It's tied to the whole earth system. And so we're seeing an interesting um, kind of shift in connotations and meanings that I think only becomes apparent when you, when you have a two century or more kind of scope to see, to see that, that development happening. Um, another thing maybe on a smaller scale uh, that, I, that I learned in the course of this project that surprised me a little bit was I, um, I'm not a historian of medicine, but I think it's, a, it's very hard to write about the history of environment as a concept without engaging with health and medicine. And one of the, the early things that I learned, which I eventually decided I did not believe, uh, when I was reading the, the work on the, in the history of, of environmental health or environmental medicine was, I learned that, that the 18th century was the decade or the, the century, uh, certainly in England and other places uh, where there was a real turn towards environmental conceptions of health. And, and oftentimes that was that's an argument that's tied to the recognition of something very real that happened, which is a, 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 res, a kind of resurgence of, of Hippocratic thought. And, and this is the idea that you know, health is largely shaped by airs, waters, and places. And, and it is definitely true that in the 18th century, you see certainly lots of British physicians turning towards Hippocratic explanations of, of health. And for many historians of medicine, that's been something that's been seen as, as an environmental turn. And what I was interested to find when I started looking more closely at these the original sources um, is that there's nothing like a concept of, of environment, even under other terms um, in, in those 18th century texts. There's a lot of talk about airs, waters, and places. There's a lot of talk about climate. 
there's talk about soils and diet being influenced by the kind of local situation. But an, an idea of a kind of single concept environment that would wrap all those things up together, I, I had a hard time finding it. And when you look at the language, it's actually only at the very end of the 19th century that you first start to see physicians and public health experts and sanitarians start to talk about environments or environmental factors of health. And the context in which they do so is actually specifically when they're engaging with germ theory, when they're engaging with these series of kind of biological vectors and agents of disease. And so what I learned by, by looking at this was that something like kind of our contemporary concept of environmental health is not something that precedes the turn, turn to germ theory. It's not something that's displaced by the emergence of a biological understanding of disease or a germ-centered idea of disease. It's, it's the other side of the coin. It emerges precisely at the same moment and it's part of the same view of the world. It's just the, the reverse, right? So it's, it's the very moment when we realize that it's you know, bacteria or viruses that can make us sick. It's the exact same moment when we realize that there's something else, right? Is all those things outside of the body, all those things that can't be explained solely by bacteria or, uh, or germs. And so that to me was, was a kind of surprise. And then the last thing I'll say, and, and this is maybe also in a way like the, the, the most, for me, one of the most important takeaways from, from the, um, the project was um, when I looked at around the, I looked at some of the, the classic figures in the American historiography of environmentalism, um, who, who have often been described in that historiography as kind of um, uh, the, the kind of early forefathers of environmentalism, people like John Muir or Gifford Pinchot. And I, I started reading through all their texts and let's say, okay, so what did they have to say about the environment? Nothing, actually. John Muir and Gifford Pinchot have nothing to say about the environment in their own terms. And of course we can look back and we can say, they say a lot of things about trees and we think trees are part of the environment, therefore they have a lot to say about the environment, but they themselves did not talk about environments. It turns out that actually at the time there were lots of people talking about environments. They just weren't talking about trees. They were talking about factories and they were talking about tenements and they were talking about cities and the problems that cities faced. And so I have a chapter where I actually look at this and in part I'm following here on the work of Robert Gottlieb who did some really uh, good work on this in his book, Forcing the Spring. But I look at these early progenitors of kind of environmental thought who were very politically engaged, also very much engaged with the evolutionary science of their time. and and we're explicitly environmentalists. And for me, that really sharpens a point which others have, have brought up, which is that when you look at the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s and the sorts of narratives that were constructed about where that movement came from, it is really interesting that a choice was made to look back to people like Muir and Pinchot as forefathers of that movement, rather than looking back to Jane Addams or Alice Hamilton or W.E.B. Du Bois, who were the ones actually talking about environments um, at the turn of the, of the 19th century. So um, yeah, and I, I just one, I guess one last, last thing um, to say before I uh, uh, close is that for me, the, one of the most exciting parts of the project was when I got to the end and, and I thought about a question that had been asked at various points over the course of the project, which was, so is the environment a good concept? Should we keep using it? And for a long time, the answer was, I don't know, I'm just gonna tell you the history and then you can decide for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a kind of classic, um, like, um, I'm not going to take responsibility for this. I'm just the analyst. Um, but actually, at the, you know, by the end of the book, and maybe that's because you can't spend, you know, years reading people talking about environments without eventually being convinced that it's, it's worth doing that. Um, but I think, you know, I ended up being really convinced that this is a really generative concept and, and remains a really gener generative concept. 
And so where I end the book is actually with a kind of brief um, survey of different um, emerging ways of conceptualizing and operationalizing a, the concept of environment that I think are different than the ones that I described in the rest of the book and are different than have existed before, but, but pick up on some of the threads of those traditions and kind of transform them to meet new aims and, under new circumstances. And so I talk about new ways of thinking about environments in science, in the arts, in humanities, and, and in activism. And for me, the kind of lesson of doing that for myself was, was that this is an extremely kind of vital and vibrant tradition and people are continually reinventing this concept to serve new purposes. So um, we might well say that a con the concept of environment associated with the environmental movement no longer serves our purpose. But I think I would not say that the concept of environment no longer serves any purpose because the concept has proven to be so capacious and, 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 and amenable to kind of reinterpretation and re-implementation. And it is in fact being re-implemented in really exciting ways uh, right now that I think it's, it's kind of worth, um, worth continuing to think about it um, and, and to experiment with it. So um, I think I probably went over my 15 minutes. So I apologize for that, but I thank you for listening. Um, and I would love to hear um, any questions you might have not a problem. Uh, it's it's interesting to hear. So uh, so we're happy to do a couple minutes extra then. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure there's lots of questions that will come up. Um, and I wanted to start with one about the yeah. I mean the selection because as you say, there's a lot of usual suspects in this story that people have looked at and have discussed that uh, before. And you you said you ended up looking then at a well primarily Western. So American, Western European uh, selection then based on what you could work with the most closely. The question is, did you see alternative, I mean, not origin stories, but episodes, significant episodes uh, elsewhere that you would have liked to look more into if you had had uh, the, the skills, language or otherwise to, to do so? I mean, are there, are there things that you would love to see others explore in the future? Not to give up any good ideas, but if you're not using them. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there are certainly some stories. So I guess there's I have two, ans two answers to that. So one of, one of my kind of filters for deciding how to, how to um, which people or episodes to focus on was I wanted to identify, I did have some kind of, a, a kind of, some kind of presentist bias in the sense that I wanted to talk about some of the, um, the developments in the history of environment as a concept that continue to have some resonance today, even if it may not always be recognized. And so I ended up focusing on, on a kind of pretty, I guess, I don't know how to put, put it, except to say somewhat kind of dominant or mainstream concepts of environment. So that's in one, one reason why some familiar characters um, and, and organizations uh, appear in the story. Um, but I, I do think that there are and have been um, various kinds of oppositional um, ways of conceiving environments. Um, you know, I mean, one very minor example, which I touch on briefly in the book, but I think could be expanded is, you know, when I look at the environmental movement in the United States in the post-war period, um, I mainly focus on, you know, people like Rachel Carson, like what could be more familiar as a character. Um, but I think, you know, somebody who is publishing contemporaneously with, with Carson Murray Bookchin is an interesting example of somebody who is a kind of anarcho-socialist um, who is inventing his own version 
of the concept of environment, which shares some things with, with Carson's, but has a, a very, very different political focus and a very, very different scope. And I think you, you could tell a story of um, subversive or radical um, and, or minor forms of environmentalism, even within these contexts that I looked at. The other thing is, you know, I was limited in part by language and familiarity with the, the histories of, 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 of certain places. And I think um, one, of, one of the goals of my project was in a way to, which I didn't mention, which wasn't the main goal, but it was there was in a way to kind of provincialize the concept of environment and say that there are many, many different traditions of understanding our surroundings and many ways of doing that. And they're not all environmental. And in fact, environment is a, one specific way of doing that. And so even if we see people talking about their surroundings or talking about the trees, we, sh we shouldn't assume that they're talking about the environment. Right? Um, that said, there, have, there are places outside of, you know, the places that I focused, you know, the West, let's say, um, where the concept of environment or a concept of environment has very explicitly been adopted. And I think there has been some scholarship, you know, for instance, on how, um, uh, you know, environmental um, language and concepts have been ad adopted in India, for example, um, where I think there's there's more work that could be done there to show how like very kind of culturally specific kind of version or materially and socially and economically kind of contextualized versions of these concepts uh, emerge in other places. Um, so, and that's, that's a story that you know, also is a story that uh, I think emerges really, especially after the 60s and 70s. I think one thing you can Say that does change in the 60s and 70s is that through the creation of organizations like the UN Environment Program, the language of environment actually explosive, grows explosively in lots of contexts, even beyond kind of the English language context. And so there, I think there's a really fascinating story that could be told about all the ways in which people in different countries do or don't pick up that concept and, and, and make it their own. So yeah, there's a, I think there's a lot more to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly. Uh, so we have a couple uh, questions now. Uh, we can start with Gabriella. Hi, um, thanks so much, Etienne. It really sounds like a fascinating book and I can't wait to read it. I had a couple of questions. I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the other case studies that you haven't mentioned so we can kind of get a broader picture of the project in its totality? And then the second is a little bit more specific and it, it harkens back to, um, and some of the things I've seen in some of the things I've read about that difference between Muir and Pincho and conservation versus environment and how you were kind of thinking about that or were you thinking about that or do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, thanks for the, those questions. Uh, so briefly, if I can remember now, uh, the, the episodes I look at, I start in, um, in basically at the Museum of Natural History in Paris in the 1790s, and I kind of trace the history over the following decades looking at, this is a period before people are explicitly using a term like milieu or environment, but I argue that this is a kind of key place and moment for understanding how that, how a set of practices and concepts emerge that eventually lead people to put a name on it, which happens by the 1830s or 40s. Um, so that's where I start. Then I have a chapter that looks at um, uh, health and medicine, um, mostly focused on the British Caribbean. And again, not because the British Caribbean is the only place that one could look or where the story is happening, but because I really wanted to make sure that my stories were really contextualized in, in relation to specific places and people and contexts. Um, but that's, there's a kind of, so that's kind of like the health chapter. Then there's a chapter on urban environmentalism, I guess, um, at the turn of this 20th century. And that's where people like Jane Addams 
and Gifford Pinchot, uh, sorry, not Gifford Pinchot, W.B. Du Bois show up and where Gifford Pinchot doesn't show up. Um, and then um, a chapter on uh, ecosystem, basically on ecosystem ecology, but tracing its kind of, its concept of environment uh, in part from the experience of World War I and, and ways of reimagining what resources are and how matter and energy flows through systems, um, which I see is Eric's uh, question in the chat about, about, about that. And then I have a chapter on the environmental movement, um, mostly focused on the US and kind of, re, kind of trying to recontextualize Rachel Carson and that, that, that um, set of concerns. And then a chapter on um, uh, climate, global climate change and, and the version of the environment that gets developed in that context in the past 30, 40 years. And as to the question about conservation, um, yeah, I mean, oftentimes like the, the early historiography on the emergence of the environmental movement often describes a shift from like the old conservation to the new conservation or from conservation to environmentalism. Um, and there's a sense in which I think that's correct. And the sense is that um, as the environmental movement kind of coalesces in the 60s and 70s, it brings together a bunch of different strands and, and wraps them within this environmental approach or environmental concept so that you can start to see, you know, forest conservation as being part of a broader environmental challenge that also includes things like the regulation of toxic chemicals, in that sense, or the prevention of biodiversity loss or whatever. Um, and so, and that's, and that's, you know, that's one of the, I think the, the ways that the, the historiography, historiography on environmentalism has worked is that people have said, okay, you have all these different strands that end up feeding into environmentalism. What was, what I guess I, I want to contribute to that is to say, you have, it, I would just kind of rephrase it to say what it, the environmentalism is in part is the reconceptualization of a bunch of other problems that used to seem separate into one thing. And that one thing is kind of the health and stability of our environment, right? But those things weren't that before, before the environmental movement kind of collectively decide, made them into that. Um, and, and what is also striking to me is that, and this is what I guess I was trying to say earlier in the presentation is that um, figures like Pinchot and Muir have figured much more prominently in the history of environmentalism than a figure like Jane Addams, you know, leader of the settlement movement, you know, founder of Hull House in Chicago. Whereas even though Adams herself, like was informed by the evolutionary theory of her day and by kind of John Dewey's pragmatist kind of concept of environments and herself thought of what she was doing as reshaping environments, both within the settlement house and in the surrounding neighborhoods to try to improve the conditions of immigrant uh, working class and poor people in Chicago. And despite the fact that she is in some ways in my mind, much more of an environmentalist than, than these other figures, she, you know, people like her get left out of these histories, have, have almost entirely been left out of these histories. And so that, I guess that's, that was the kind of intervention that I was hoping to make. Thank you. So then um, Raf is next. Hello, Christian. Uh, Hi. Thanks so much for your uh, for your introduction. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, to read uh, the book. Um, I have two relatively short questions, really. Um, so the first one is very is a very practical one. Uh, I was intrigued by what you said about that you looked at 
the Notion environment when it popped up, but also its linguistic equivalence. So, and then I wonder, yeah, how to operationalize what a linguistic equivalent is, because it could be once once you start translating, of course, you start changing the concept. So that that would be one question. Uh, and then the second one, uh, which ties up with, with uh, your previous answer, I think, uh, has to do with uh, sciences of the environment uh, and um, the extent to which this notion uh, of the environment is crucial for these sciences. I could think in the 19th century of sociology, for instance, or ecology. So to which extent you think this notion itself was crucial for discipline formation that would be my second yeah question. yeah those are those are kind of big questions but i'll try to give short answers um so the first one about um equivalence yeah so this the, the translation question totally raises again the 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 problem of you know how much are you working from your own definitions versus trying to understand the act the historical actors own terms um what what i did was um is um, I tried to find, so I, I will admit that I started from English and, um, and then I looked at in part where my, you know, English actors or where non-English actors were. So where my, my English speakers were engaging with non-English terms or where non-English speakers were engaging with the English term environment. And so, you know, one good example very early on would be Herbert Spencer's use of the word environment starting in the 1850s. Um, so he's, you know, getting that, environment's not a common term at that point. He seems to mainly be getting it from, probably from Harriet Martineau's translation of Auguste Comte's uh, principles of, of positive, uh, of positive philosophy. And so the, you know, there's there's a way in which like you, you can you can through Spencer's own writing and own kind of paper trail, you can trace a connection back to Comte's use of milieu. And I think and I think there's other supporting evidence to show that those things are pretty tightly connected. Um, and I think you can find the traffic going in actually in both ways. You can find French writers who write about English writers who are writing about environment and decide to call it milieu at that period. And so my 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 attempt and this is also how in a way how I hope that the whole thing hangs together is that it's not that I'm projecting onto the past my idea of environment and finding things that match it, but I'm going back to the past. I'm saying, hey, if you're talking about environment and then you're reading Comte and you think that Comte is talking about the same thing you are, then I'm going to assume that those things for your purposes are, the, are essentially the same thing. Right? So trying to do it that way. Um, the second question was something else. Sorry, just can you quickly remind me? <laughs> Yeah, sorry, that took a while. Uh, oh, sciences, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just needed to hear your voice one more time to, to remind me. Um, so uh, I think it's absolutely essential. And, and I guess I, I'm, I'm becoming like a, a very quant-centric in this answer because, you know, you mentioned sociology and ecology in the 19th century. And he, of course, is you know one, the coiner of the term sociology, and I think his understanding of it is deeply informed by his idea of what a milieu is. Right? This is part of you know his understanding that the relationship between the individual and the milieu um, is sort of essential to his idea of sociology. And I think you know the idea of ecology as it emerges in the late nineteenth century is deeply influenced 
in the English context by, by Spencer and also to some extent by Kohn by these attempts to kind of reconceptualize all of the sciences in terms of these relationships between things and their surroundings. I guess I'm simplifying things a little bit, but I think that there's some truth to that. Um, and so um, there are, you know, um, I think that I think it, I think the idea of environment is foundational to, to ecology, for instance, as it emerges at the end of the 19th century. I think the concept of environmental sciences is is a much later one. So it's one that's a post World War II um, idea, and it's a it's a way of kind of reconceptualizing and reconceptualizing an even broader swath of of earth science, whatever we want to call them, earth sciences, natural history, the, the the descendants of natural history, or something. It's a way of reconceptualizing all of those as somehow telling us something about, about our surroundings. Um, and so I, th I think that's what, you know, there's a lot of other reasons why that term emerges at that, at that point, but I think that's one of the things that happens in less, like the 1960s is that people say, we can understand meteorology as being a, a science that tells us something essential about our surroundings and geology and oceanography and, and so forth. Anyway, it's, a, it's not a complete answer, but it's, it's a good question. It's one that I, I'm still thinking about. Good. So then we have a couple of questions in the chat. I can just read them then for the, the people watching on the video later. So could you elaborate briefly on the systems theories and systems thinkers that you discussed in your chapter, the biosphere as battlefields? That's a question from Eric that you referred to uh, earlier. Uh, yeah, so um, it's a, a good question. Um, thanks, thanks for posing it, because it allows me to talk about a chapter that I haven't mentioned really. Um, much and um, you know, so I'm, I'm mainly focused in that case on 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 ecosystems theorists. So I focus mainly on people like uh, Tansley, um, Lindemann, Hutchinson, the Odoms. Um, they are to some extent being influenced by other systems thinkers, like uh, especially you know, kind of post World War II by people like Berta Lanfey. But, um, but I'm mainly focused on these kind of ecological systems um, thinkers. And I guess the intervention that I, I wanna make in that chapter is, is twofold. And one is to say that to think about in environments in terms of, of systems or to reconceive kind of the relationship between an organism and its environment in terms of a, systems, a system was a profound shift. And just to call, call attention to that shift in, in the conception of what an environment is, to understand it as a system is very different than the way it was understood, let's say, by Spencer in the late 19th century, or by a sanitarian, you know, writing in the 1890s, or even by people like, you know, like Adams or whatever, working in, this, in urban reform. So that that would be one. That's kind of one, one intervention. And the other is to show how much that systems thinking was influenced by uh, World War One, and particularly by concerns about resource shortages. So so I show, for instance, how Vladimir Vernadsky's work is by his own in his own by his own admission by his own kind of claim is deeply deeply influenced by the the experience of world war one and the and the realization that the economy of a place like russia um was deeply entangled with the kind of whole surrounding world world system of which it was a part kind of economic and material system of which it was a part and so vernadsky says that it was that experience that in part leads him to, to the idea of the biosphere and it's vernadsky's idea of the biosphere which is one of the key and the techniques of biogeochemistry that he develops, that's one of the key influences on the emergence of, of, of ecosystem ecology in the, in the 30s and 40s. And so that's that's the kind of, yeah, again, intellectual kind of milieu that I was writing about in that chapter. 
Okay, so we have another question then from Tina. Um, can you say a bit more about the choice made by environmentalists in the 1960s and 1970s to look back at Muir and Pinchot rather than Adams de Bois? Why? Uh, what, what were the politics or stakes uh, in making such choices? And I guess like, was this also an intentional choice? Hmm. Yeah, it, it might, I mean, it might, uh, uh, yeah, so, I think, I'm not sure it was intentional um, because I think um, if you look at, the, at where the environmental movement em emerges from at, at that point, and I think people like Chris Sellers and Hal Rothman and, and Adam Rome and many others have written really um, well about this, that it is emerging from um, oftentimes from kind of suburban environments, I'm talking about the US context now, from kind of su suburban places and, and also from uh, people who are trying to, um, yeah, understand how these landscapes that they're living in are being kind of toxified or, or transformed by the kind of consumer economy that that's that's flourishing around them. And they are tend to be looking kind of outward from the suburbs rather than inward towards the city. And, and the reason I think they're doing that is the multiple, you know, there's, there's a few different reasons. I don't think you can leave race out of the story. I think it's clear that, you know, the, the environmental movement as it emerges in the United States is largely a, a white middle-class phenomenon. And it's, it's centered on people who's, who are, doing their best to um, distance themselves from what they understand as kind of, you know, the black, black cities that, that they're, they've moved away from um, and in some ways have abandoned. And so I think, you know, the choice to look to people like, I, I don't want to overstate the kind of the, 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 the racial kind of case for the, the turn to Muir and, and Pinchot, but, but I do think it's real. And I do think that, that there was it was easier, let me put it this way, it was easier for environmental activists of the 60s to look to somebody like Muir or Pinchot as, as models than it was for them. And then, and thereby to turn towards a politics of wilderness and resource conservation and endangered species, than it was for them to look towards cities and factories and workplaces, right? Which would have, and so I don't know, I, at the end of the day, I'm not sure if I would say it was intentional. I think, I think people were taking you know, the people who ended up leading that movement ended up taking the path of least resistance, which was deeply shaped by their economic and geographical position and also their kind of position within the US kind of racial system. So that's, anyway, that's, I feel like this is an inarticulate answer to a really important question, but there are at least some of the factors that I think were part of it. All right, so Dolly has a question. Yes, I wanted to get to the, you made a, a point at the end about how you have decided that environment is a, is a word worth holding on to and engaging with then after this uh, analysis. So I was wondering in all of this, what you would say the difference is between nature and environment. Um, does it shift over time in your actors or do they have some idea that those things are, are different um, that's consistent or, or not? I think, I mean, 
I have a cop-out cop answer that I can always rely on, which is to say that it's really different. And this is the whole point of my project is that people use these terms differently. But I, I actually have an answer, <laughs> which is that, um, you know, I think, I think for a lot of the, the actors that I look at, so I'm looking at, you know, at these moments where groups of people or communities of people in communication with each other, you know, adopt environment as, as a term. And in all of the communities of people that I look at, also have nature available as a term and have had nature available as a term for a really long time. And so, and of course nature has shifted in its meanings. I mean, Raymond Williams and others have documented how nature shifts in its meanings as well, but, but I think it is meaningful and this is not to get too focused on words, you know, as opposed to concepts, but I think it is meaningful when a group of people says, hey, we, we're gonna start using this new word and it's gonna become really important. Sometimes that's, it tells you more about affiliations uh, among people than it does about the actual content of the concept. But I think it can sometimes indicate something about the content of the concept as well. And so, you know, my, my question has been, why does a, a group of people who already has nature as a concept ready to hand decide that they also need it, this other term, environment? And, you know, one thing that I think emerges over the course of the period that I'm looking at, you know, you have the emergence at the end of the 18th century, let's say, of kind of romantic conceptions of nature. So nature, not just as, you know, the way things ought to be or the order of the cosmos, but something like the, the idea that in specific places on the earth's surface, you can encounter nature or in specific phenomena, you can encounter nature at its purest. And through that encounter, you can somehow become more actualized or enlightened or fulfilled or, or whatever it is that, that Wordsworth is getting when he goes out, you know, a few miles above Tintern Abbey um, into, into nature. And so, and so there's, there's that idea, that kind of romantic idea of nature. And I think it's a powerful one and it's a one that often affects people who think are thinking in environmental terms, but it's different. You know, the environmental kind of concept as I trace its history is rooted in this idea of, um, an, of a relationship that is a biological relationship as well as a kind of social one um, between an organism or an individual and its kind of material surroundings. And I think that that concept actually leads people in very different directions than, than an idea, especially a romantic idea of nature does. Um, and, that, and it's also why you end up, you know, having people using terms like natural environment, right? If you didn't, if nature and environment meant the same thing, you wouldn't have to say it's a natural environment, a natural environment. Um, and I think that's, you know, it, so anyway, um, does that sort of answer? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, that, that's what I was thinking in, in this difference between nature and environment is, as somehow also nature being those things out there, but environment being the things, as you're saying, surrounding. So, so in some sense, yeah. it's more immediate um, and it yeah. includes people in it always. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, like Paul Ward and Circus Erlin and Nino Worms have developed an interesting idea of environing, which I think they, to simplify, I think they define kind of as the transformation of nature into things that matter to humans. Um, and I, I see some legitimacy in that, um, but I think my project's a little, I, I, I think it's a very interesting idea, but I think my project's a little bit different in the sense that I, I, I don't want to make a claim myself about what an environment is so much as to say, let me show you the kind of panoply of ways that people talked about environments. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm going to combine the next two questions, uh, which also deals with, in a way, things outside your story then. So Helen first asks, so much writing by historians of science and environmental historians focuses on the terrestrial to the exclusion of the oceanic. Even if you didn't write about oceans, marine ecology and so on, do you have a sense of how they fit into your story? And then as an extension of that then, 
Ted's question about what role do animals play in these concepts? So, I mean, beyond conservationists. Um, yeah, um, thanks for those questions. Um, yeah, I'm not actually sure. Um, so, Helen, there is like a tiny bit of like marine history, a tiny, tiny bit in my story, which is in the, the chapter on, um, well, there's the seafaring part of the, the Parisian naturalist story, you know, where are they getting all their, their specimens? Um, and then, but I think maybe more, you know, interestingly, there's in the, in the chapter on kind of ecosystem ecology, I have a little, a little bit about, you know, population ecology. Um, and how that links to ideas about resources. And, and we know one source of, you know, Vito Volterra's idea of kind of prey, predator prey relationships emerges partly out of observations on Mediterranean uh, fish populations and that as they're affected by World War I. You know, so there, there is some story there where people are using, you know, the seas as one model of how to understand how re kind of resources change over time. Um, but I, will, I just have to say, I, I am maybe guilty of being a terrestrial list <laughs> and uh there's a lot more work to be done on, on the ocean side of the story um on the animals um i guess um you know and i have thought a lot about animals and written a lot about human animal relationships and it it was not the main focus of, of this um, um book um of course when biologists were coming up with ideas about how you know living beings relate to their surroundings um animals were part of that and i talk about that in the kind of first substantive chapter of the book about the attempt to kind of create uh, artificial environments for zebras or dingoes or kangaroos or whatever um, in, in Paris in a kind of climate that they weren't suited to, but nonetheless to make an environment that they could live in. Um, and, so, and so that's one place that they, they figure in. Um, but but I, I don't actually write too much about animals in this book. Right, so we're getting close to the end, but we have uh, another question then from uh, Philip who says, uh, so he has several questions, an obvious one. So which place do you give to the Asian histories of environments and environmentalisms, which connects a bit to the discussion we had initially. And then perhaps a, a more elusive one that says there might be a good concluding uh, question, hopefully concluding answer uh, here. In a world that is again uh, fragmented, which common concepts may emerge? And would you based on that rewrite your book conclusion? Yeah. So do you think Maybe, what, um, what might be, I guess, what might be the, the future concepts that would tie things together? Do you think that an environment will continue to function as mm. you see it as a, as a concept that ties things together? Or, or might there be other things or, or do you see any movement towards new concepts to take over? Mm. I mean, maybe you talked a little bit about climate in that, in that sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can. Um, yeah, I can try to answer that. Um, Philippe, if you had any other thoughts you wanted to add, I wasn't quite sure what you meant by uh, rewriting my book conclusion. I mean, I know what you meant, but I'm curious to know why, 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 like in response to what. Um, maybe you could clarify that in the chat, or I can just try to go for it. But as far as the you know, Asian histories of environments and environmentalisms, um, you know, obviously there's an incredibly rich and complex history across hundreds of, you know, of different kind of societies and cultures and, 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 and communities um, in Asia, right? It's a huge story um, of, of ways that people have, have understood and, and 
interacted with their surroundings or with the non-human world or whatever term, term we want to use. Um, I think um, you know my my project was specifically to look for how the concept of environment per se, right, explicitly this concept, gets adopted by communities of people, and in um, and there, you know, are definitely stories in the 19th century already that you could tell. I think there's probably an amazing, there's probably a really interesting story about kind of Japanese adoptions of biological ideas of environment and milieu in the 19th century that would be really interesting, and 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 also ideas about environmental movements. But I, unfortunately, I don't I don't know those histories very well. All, all the stuff that I know is kind of later histories, like late 20th century histories of how. The, the rhetoric of development, the kind of sustainable development with its ideas about environment gets adopted or not adopted by, by people living in, in India, and, um, for example. So there's a lot more to say there. Um, and then uh, the question about how I would rewrite, like what common concepts might emerge and how I would rewrite my book conclusion. Well, I mean, the short answer is this book just came out in March and I'm not ready to rewrite the book conclusion yet. <laughs> Give me a couple of years and I'll come back to it. Um, but, um, you know, I, I guess, um, I think uh, there is a profoundly political issue uh, or maybe political ontological issue that your question gets to about living in a fragmented world, um, which is, you know, how do we deal with the fact that, that it is increasingly clear that there's not really a consensus world that we're all living in, um, that we can all just assume that if we get around the table and talk rationally about our shared, you know, this shared consensus world that we're gonna come to some kind of good, good conclusion. I think it's increasingly clear that people are bringing different ontologies and different standards and different metrics to the table uh, in a way that means that they're, they're not talking with each other, <laughs> right? And so, um, you know, I don't think I have a solution to like political fragmentation or like ontological difference. You know, um, I think there are people like Isabel Stengers and Bruno Latour and others who've been, you know, trying to think through these in, in kind of philosophical terms. Um, I would say like my contribution would, I hope, be to, to say something like um, when we think that we are gathered together around some matter of environmental concern, or around our identities as environmentalists or anti-environmentalists, if we if we are that, um, that that it might it is is worth slowing down and trying to understand precisely how the other people in the conversation are conceiving of and materializing their imagination of of the environment, and and to recognize that it's really can be profoundly different. And in that context, I think we. You know, I make a kind of pitch for environmental humanities at the end of the book where I think one thing the environmental humanities can do is like use the tools of the humanities to sensitize us to nuances and how people encounter and understand the worlds around them. And that, that that itself maybe has some kind of political impact. I know there's maybe an optimism there, right? That like something like scholarship um, could, could do that, but I think it's there. And, and of course, you know, I see your comment now about religion, eco-theology and so forth. And, you know, I think one of the implications of an attention to ontological difference is a recognition that people populate their worlds with entities that are profoundly different from each, you know from each other like there might be people who populate their world with the spirits of the, of their ancestors and there are people who don't and so it's not just a matter of like do we live in a healthy environment or not it's like it's a matter of what are the beings that exist in your environment? And they might be radically different from mine. And that's a different place to start a conversation than than the conversation about thresholds or you know, biodiversity loss rates or, or whatever. And so I hope, you know, 
I don't have a solution to any of this, but I do hope that my book at least opens up to engaging with those kinds of differences as well. Thanks for I the question. That's a wonderful place to start this conversation um, and to start a conversation about surroundings. Um, so we just wanna thank you, Etienne, for coming and talking to us about surroundings, a history of environments and environmentalisms, which is at with University of Chicago Press, um, because I think this, uh, is precisely the thing that environmental humanities wants to do to be sensitive to the ways in which people understand these concepts, use them. And then yes, if we're sitting around the table, we may not actually have the same idea. We may not be talking about the same thing. Um, so I think this is very in, a very timely contribution uh, to the field. So thank you for coming to talk to us today. Thank you.